The Irish Times Books Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's ethically sourced cocoa for a delicious chocolate taste. Welcome to the Irish Times Books Podcast with me, Martin Doyle. Danielle McLaughlin this week won the 2019 Sunday Times Audible Short Story Award, whose £30,000 prize money makes it the world's richest for a short story. It caps a remarkable year for the former solicitor from County Cork, who only took up writing seriously 10 years ago at the age of 40, when illness forced her to stop practising law. In March, she was awarded the $165,000 Wyndham Campbell Prize for Fiction, Her winning story, A Partial List of the Saved, explores the divorce and the interwoven family relationships it affects. I spoke to Danielle in London the morning after her big win about her prize-winning story, her debut collection, Dinosaurs on Other Planets, and her forthcoming debut novel. Good morning. Good morning to you. So listen, congratulations, Danielle. Um, That's a fantastic achievement. I'm as overwhelmed um, this morning as I was yesterday evening um, but yeah it's it's startling and it's um, it's an amazing surprise I'm just astounded by it all really It's been some year for you like it's only um, a few months since you won the Wyndham Campbell Prize back in March that was $165,000 which must have been um, an amazing uh, experience as well. Um, it must feel um, like a sort of a death charge or something like four years after your debut collection came out and was very well received but this year um, between books if, if you like um, you've suddenly um, achieved amazing prominence. It's been an absolutely extraordinary year and uh, like it still feels very unreal to me yes mm-hmm. um, everything about it it's wonderful obviously and I'm thrilled but um, I suppose it's not what I associate with the life of a short story writer you couldn't make it up so to speak <laughs> tell me t- yeah. tell me about your, your winning story a partial list of the saved uh, one of the judges Blake Morrison called it a fascinating portrayal of both cowardice and courage um, I read somewhere that it was um, based on a on a real life incident could you tell me a little bit about the origin of the story well the story took shape over a couple of years and like often happens with my stories, it'll start off sparked by one thing, but then because I'm spending so long with them over many drafts, lots of other things come in, and it's really, so it's a mix of different things together that go to make up the story. Um, the the core relationship um, issue, if you like, at the heart of the story. Somebody pretending that they're still happily married because they don't want to upset a family member. Um, That was sparked by the situation of a couple that I know in real life. So Mm -hmm. that was was where that came from. Other things fed into the story then as well. Um, So, for example... The, the title, A Partial List of the Saved, that came from a newspaper cutting that I saw framed 
on the wall of a pub somewhere in Northern Ireland Mm -hmm. a few years back. And as well, the newspaper had published a partial list of the saved from the Titanic. And um, that just struck me as a really interesting kind of list. Mm -hmm. And there is the whole idea of, you know, it's a partial list of the saved. So it's you know, there's still hope there that there might be people who are mm-hmm, saved mm-hmm. whose names are not yet appearing on this list. And yeah. then there's the job of the person who has to put that list together for the newspaper. And it's quite a momentous task, you know, when you decide that you've got a definitive list mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. the saved. Um, so the, the Titanic Museum in Belfast came into the story through that route. Um that would have come in later in the drafts, mm-hmm. I think. Um, I had from quite early on this middle-aged Irish man coming back to Ireland. He's been living in America for many years, and he's coming back to attend his father's 80th birthday party, and his father's very unwell. Mm-hmm. And he's bringing his ex-wife with him, and he's asked her to pretend that they're still happily married because he doesn't want to upset his father. Mm-hmm. And I had that scene in the plane, was there for a long time, and the fact for a long time the title that I had for the story was In the Unlikely Event of Landing in Water, mm-hmm. um, which comes from those emergency instructions that they read out to us on airplanes. And it has always struck me as a bit odd that mm-hmm. someone can say in quite a blasé fashion, in the unlikely event of landing in water. Mm-hmm. Each time I kind of go, what? Unlikely. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was there from the beginning, but lots of other parts of the story went in different directions and bits of the story fell off and new bits of the story um, stuck themselves on. So it was a long time in the making. It's it's a, there's a kind of a sense, isn't there, that with um, with short stories or with fiction, um, there is that sort of duality kind of going on. That you know there is the appearances or whatever, and then there is the kind of truth that maybe only um, the participants, but also maybe the, the readers of the short story, are privy, privy to what's what's really going on, or are the kind of the secrets that that um, people live with, if you like. Yeah. Uh, One of the things I like about short stories is the way that I think they can speak to the reader in a very, very direct, very personal way. And um, they're this short, intense piece of writing. And I think in a short story, um, every piece of the story is... um, bouncing up against every other part of the story or maybe glancing up against every other part of the story is a better Mm -hmm. way of putting it Mm -hmm. all the time. So it's like every part of the story is in the sight of every other part of the story, if you know what I mean, whereas maybe in a longer novel things um, move in and out. But everything is always there with Mm -hmm. the short story. And I think readers can can I suppose bring their own lives then to that Mm -hmm. and I like the way that short stories, they invite the reader into the story to make the story their own. Mm-hmm. So they're, I suppose with short stories, a lot so much is about what's not stated or not spelled out as much as what, what the writer puts down on the page because there's that space, I think, for the reader to 
to make the story their own. So it's it's a very much, I think, um, it's an interactive reading experience. It's not a passive experience. And part of that perhaps is the sense that, you know, there isn't uh, a neat resolution at the end. Like I think Kit Duval, one of the judges, says it ends fittingly without any clear answers. It is a brave writer that can take their foot off the pedal at just the right moment. Um, like I think quite often with maybe less successful short stories, there is, you know, rather too, too neat uh, uh, an ending or a, a resolution which um, maybe doesn't uh, replicate uh, real life is, is less convincing in some sense? I think the characters in this particular story, um, I think whatever ending they have, um, I don't think it can ever be a neat one for them because Mm -hmm. um, their relationship has gone through a particularly um, rough time and, you know, things have been said and done that can't be unsaid and undone. And at the same time, um, I like to think that there's hope for them, but mm-hmm. um, it's not going to be neat, whatever it is, which I suppose is like life. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think in life, you know, the, the ends, we never reach a point where all the ends are tied up. You touched earlier on on the you, you mentioned the number of drafts or whatever. I think you're you're possibly quite famous, certainly in, in Irish literary circles, for the amount of drafts that um, you get through um, with a piece of work. Um, would you like to just maybe expand a little bit on, on that? Just um, you know the the process of kind of constantly editing and and revising. Obviously, you know you're part of a writing group which. Uh, down in Cork, which is maybe part of that, but also your um, collaboration with with an editor, like say in your short story collection, that would have been Declan Mead at Stinging Fly. In this case, the the story was was published as part of the Faber anthology, being various New Irish short stories edited by Lucy Caldwell. So, can you tell us a little bit about that process? Okay, so my stories, I have a very messy writing process, I think, and the stories. They go through all kinds of different incarnations before the final version. Mm -hmm. And if I was ever able to work out a shorter way of doing them, um, I'd be so thrilled because I think I'd managed to produce a lot more of them. Whereas I actually um, spend a lot of my time writing things and developing characters that don't find their way into the end story. Now, I will always keep those pieces, so I throw nothing out. Mm -hmm. So I do know um, by now that what I write maybe isn't going to be used in the story. So I won't throw anything away and a character may come back into another story. Mm -hmm. But I will start out longhand and I'll work in a notebook for for a few weeks. Sometimes it'll take a few months and I'll still be scribbling at the notebook stage and later I'll move on to computer. Um, My writing group will look at the story and they look at it again and again. So um, they have great patience with all the different drafts I Mm -hmm. bring in because um, I suppose different writers just have different styles of how a story is constructed. Mm -hmm. But for me, I know that it's not just that it starts off very rough and then it becomes more and more polished. Um, For me, the story will keep changing in very major ways 
all the way along. So I could be 20 drafts in mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there could be a huge change in the arc of the plot or it could be 20 drafts in and I will lose um, one of my main characters and mm-hmm. another character will come into the story. So while I always like to trace out a scaffolding for my story at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, when I get to the end result, then it will very rarely um, correspond with what I started out with. But mm-hmm. I like to do that um that scaffold anyway. I I feel happier having it, even though I know now that it's not going to Mm -hmm. um, bear any resemblance to the final product. Mm -hmm. So my writing group um, will give me lots and lots of very kind, but also very honest feedback. And I'm lucky I've been in the same writing group for eight years now. And everyone is so very supportive of everyone else in the group. So Mm -hmm. It's very, very useful feedback that that I get on the story. So, you know, nobody will say, oh, that's lovely. If they think it's not working, they'll actually tell you that, you know, this isn't working. So Mm -hmm. it's very useful feedback. And when I get to a certain point with the stories and my writing group, then it will go to my agent, Lucy Luck, perhaps, or Mm -hmm. it may go to uh, my editors. And there will be more and more rewrites at that stage as well. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it it takes me a long time to maybe to know what I'm doing myself with the story. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'm not even sure myself always that I could say what the story is about on mm-hmm. a core emotional level. But that doesn't trouble me either in that it's more a communication or a connection that I'm asking. I suppose that I'm trying to create between the reader and mm-hmm. the characters and the mm-hmm. reader and the characters will will have their own relationship so so mm-hmm. that's fine and sometimes you know someone reading the story might have a clearer picture of things in the story than than I might have as a writer so because yeah I think you know it's I suppose it, go, it goes back to that idea that the story will speak to different mm-hmm. readers in different ways and sometimes it's part of the editor's rule, perhaps, to sort of tell you when the story is finished. Yeah, I always need somebody to tell me when a story is finished. I'm a very poor judge of that myself. And maybe it's because I'm so, um, my process is so open to constant change in mm-hmm, the story. Mm-hmm. So I could keep on and on writing a story and maybe, it's, you know, it could end up morphing through a number mm-hmm. of different stories. So I really need someone else to say yes this is working, that's fine now. In fact, are you one of those writers who keeps editing their work after it's been published? Um, You know, I've noticed a couple of times and say when writers are reading from their work in public, you know, they're reading from a a printed copy of their work, but they've kind of rewritten it and sort of scribbled bits out and added bits in. And I know John McGahern, for example, um, you know, did many versions of, of a story even after it had been published. Well, um, yeah, I know every every time I go back over a story, I will see something else that Mm -hmm. I would think I should have done differently. And like that, if I'm reading something aloud for a festival event, I will be, you know, taking little words out or Mm -hmm. maybe changing the format of a piece of dialogue. Um, Because I'm always very unsure about my stories, I find that when it when a story is accepted for pub- 
bar publication, I tend to almost run away from the story then mm-hmm. for a while. So mm-hmm. it's like I keep my distance from it and I will often find myself avoiding reading a story again because I know that I will see something that I'm convinced sure. I I did wrong. So um so when they get to the point where they're being published I find I have a resistance then mm-hmm. to, to revisiting them. But there's a wonderful um book, I'm trying to think of the name of it now, but it's about the craft of Flannery O'Connor's writing because it's one of her earliest stories. I think it's The Geranium. I think it might have been her first ever published short story. Mm-hmm. And she kept writing that story um, over several decades. So that I think the the final version maybe was published after she died and you can actually so this book has been put together to show the different versions of the Mm -hmm, story and mm -hmm. it's possible to see how it developed over the years and the different approaches she took to the different versions of the story and what changed and how she reordered materials so Mm -hmm. um, that was really that was really interesting for me to see see her process there and to see that she kept going back to this story um, Mm -hmm. because obviously she was chasing something in it and for anyone else reading it I mean the first the first version was a brilliant story anyway Mm -hmm. but I do think that with short stories there is a sense that there's something we're chasing through the story Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we're always trying to catch it but um, maybe it's always um, elusive I don't I don't know maybe there's a sense like with a poem because it's shorter or whatever that it is maybe more perfectible than than say a novel in terms of getting the you know the perfect where every word is tells yeah and I think yeah it's it's that shorter space of text so you can keep seeing when you know a change in one line will impact a change in a line that went earlier and mm-hmm. It's maybe easier to see that or keep track of that in a short story than in a novel. So mm-hmm. it is um, quite tempting to to go back and say, well, I'll fix this because if I've changed this here, well, then that has implications mm-hmm. for, you know, the paragraph on the next page. And that isn't um, possible, of course, to the same extent really with, with a novel, just because of, I suppose, the sheer size of a novel, but also because the novel works in a different way and I'm not sure I can explain exactly how a novel works but there is this thing that with the novel things different parts of the novel and different characters step away from each other and mm-hmm. come closer again and they, they'll go back and forth and sort of zoom in and out over the course of maybe 80,000, 90,000 words whereas sure. um, there's this more compact stage space, if you like, with a short story. Green and Black's Velvet Edition range introduces a variety of signature flavours in a smooth, velvety finish. Made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa, choose Green and Black's chocolate and escape the ordinary. One of the things that's notable about um, this this competition is the fact that it was such a remarkable achievement that there were three Irish writers out of six on the shortlist, as well as yourself. There was Kevin Barry, a previous winner of the award, and like you, a protege of Declan Mead at Stinging Fly, and also Louise Kennedy, um, who remarkably um, hasn't actually brought out a collection yet. 
And yeah. even on the long list, there were another three Irish, so there was six out of 18 on the long list, Keelan Hughes, Wendy Erskine and Jared McKeague. Um, Andrew Holgate, the literary editor of the Sunday Times, said, following on from Sally Rooney, who received her very first recognition by being shortlisted here, Danielle McLaughlin shows Ireland's continuing ability to produce fresh, vibrant and exciting new voices and our awards continuing ability to discover and showcase the very best new talent. Why do you think the short story is such a prominent feature in the Irish literary landscape? Well, I think firstly, we're very fortunate that we have the support of publishers like The Stinging Fly, who have supported the short story over, you know, over 20 years at this stage. So as an Irish short story writer, I think, um, you know, we always know that there are places where we can send our work and there are people who are actually um, ready to champion short stories. So there's great support, I think, from publishers in Ireland, like the Stinging Fly Press, um, for short stories. And I think the Literary Journal um, is very, very strong in Ireland. So as well as the Stinging Fly magazine, mm -hmm. we have lots of other literary journals as well that are all um, supporting yes, I think short stories. Louise Kennedy's story was first published in the Tangerine um, Literary right. Magazine in Belfast. Yeah. Um, could I just ask, um, so like Dinosaurs and others, Other Planets um, came out back in 2015 and then in, with Stinging Fly and then in the UK and the US in 2016 with John Murray and Random House. Um, like Anne Enright's words at your launch, I remember them. Um, Anne gives great uh, launch speeches, but I remember um, quoting her when she said, this is not a debut in the usual sense, a promise of greater things to come. There is no need to ask what Danielle McLaughlin will do next. She has done it already. This book has arrived. I think it will stay with us for a long time. Like I think those words um, 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 have absolutely um, borne true over time. Um, could I just ask, in, in the intervening year, in, in the intervening years, um, you've Hank, you've had several stories published in. Um, the New Yorker, and obviously earlier this year you had the huge recognition um, from the Wyndham Campbell Prize um, um, at Yale. Um, your debut novel, A Retrospective, um, is now, I think, coming out in 2021 uh, with John Murray. Is that what you've primarily been working on in the intervening years? Well, I've been working on new short stories alongside working on the novel. So I was a very long time um, getting the novel to come right. Mm -hmm. And I've only recently finished that. I'm about to start into the copy edit stage. I've been working on short stories alongside um, the novel. So maybe since my collection, I've probably written... Um, since my collection, Dinosaurs and Other Planets, was published, I've maybe written seven or eight new short stories. Mm -hmm. And I have a few more under construction at the moment. I just took one into my writing group last week and they've given me lots to think about on it. So mm -hmm. I'll be bringing them that back into them again in, in a couple of weeks' time. So I'm, I suppose I'm always working on short stories. There are times when other... Um, 
other parts of the writing life kind of, you know, step in and make themselves felt and then something gets put down and I move on to something Mm -hmm. else for a while. But I'm happy going back and forth between different things anyway. I think it's it's a bit like a security blanket for me to um, to have a number of different things mm-hmm. under construction at the same time because then I don't worry about getting stuck on any one thing because I'll just move to something I else understand. and I'll, I'll come back to whatever is giving me trouble maybe in a couple of weeks and it sure. might work better for me then. Would you like to tell us a little bit about um, your debut novel? I think it's called A Retrospective. Um, it started out, I think, in a working writing workshop given by Nulo O'Connor at Waterford Writers Weekend way back in 2012. Is that right? Um, yeah, so I can still remember the writing prompt that I got in Nulo's workshop all those years ago at this stage. I got a little piece of, it was like a piece of broken crockery and mm-hmm. it was kind of it had a chalky feel to it, and I, I had a, um, a strong sense of an isolated place, and this sense of chalk, and a sense of, I suppose, stone or rock or sculpture, and I wrote a short story um, on that prompt, started by that little piece mm-hmm. of um, crockery. And for a long time, I fought with that short story. It was called The Chalk Sculpture. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it and I rewrote it and I tried it from all different angles and different points of view. And it never had worked out for me as a short story until um, maybe a couple of years down the line, I realized that actually it might work it might work as a longer piece, as a novel. And it actually, um, it sort of got together with some characters I had in my head that I had started out for what I thought was going to be a different piece. Mm -hmm. And those two things actually ended up um, coming together to form what is now retrospective. Mm -hmm. Um, For years, it was called, in my head, the chalk sculpture. Mm -hmm. And um, it turned out that there was another book um, with a very similar name. In fact, there's several books with very similar titles. So I went looking for a new title. And because it had been in my head, the chalk sculpture for so long, it took me a while to um, to come up with retrospective. Mm-hmm. But I actually, I actually prefer retrospective now. I think retrospective maybe speaks more to what the, what the novel is about. Mm-hmm. So, And in the novel, it's set between Cork City and West Cork. Its um, main character is a woman in her 40s. And um, I suppose we're meeting her in the novel at a point where she has a lot of pressure in her personal life. Um, Her marriage isn't going that well. Um, She has financial pressures. She has pressures in her professional life um, where she's curating an exhibition of work um, by a a dead sculptor um, who who lived down in in West Cork. And at this, I suppose, this point in her life when she has so many pressures going on, her past intrudes at the worst possible moment. in the shape of the son of a dead friend of hers um, who comes back into her life. So the story is, I suppose, about that weave of complications and the effect of the past on on the present and dealing with that 
uh, an element of kind of learning as you went along or was it a strain at all? Um, it was very, very difficult. I found the novel very hard to write. Um, it took me a long time. So I've only, say, finished this earlier this year. I still have the copy edits to do, but it had its first spark of beginning way back in 2012. So that's a long time attempting to write it. I did find this difficult. Um, I would like to think that, you know, maybe the next novel I attempt that I might have learned some things and that I might find it easier, but I don't know because mm-hmm. I have read what other writers have said about that and I have read that um, actually know that it's just as difficult the second time round that every novel is its own new thing. So I don't know, only time will tell, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I had huge changes um, made to this novel throughout the process. So, for example, at one stage, it was a novel in the first person. It's now in the third person. Mm-hmm. So that was a very big change in terms of the voice. And that changed. Um, it wasn't just a question question of substituting the, the she for the I, but it actually um, it changed something fundamental about the the main character, I think, mm-hmm. or maybe the way I as writers saw mm-hmm. or approached or treated um, the main character. I think I was, when I was writing in the I voice, I was very, very hard on my main character mm-hmm. and um, maybe I was quite mean to her and maybe there were elements of you know self-hatred coming mm-hmm, through mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. And when I changed over to she, I think maybe I was a little bit fairer on her. Okay, so the, the distancing actually um, made it, you more empathetic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it helped me in, mm-hmm. in that instance, I think. And that was a suggestion from my agent who has um, read, um, she's read so many drafts of the novel at this stage. She's amazing. Lisa mm-hmm. Luck, she's mm-hmm. a brilliant agent and I'm so lucky to have her. Um, but that was her idea to, to try it in third person. And I, was, I had quite a few drafts attempted at that mm-hmm. stage but it really changed something when I moved away from the I voice so. Lovely um, I wanted to ask you as as well Danielle um, like you're a relatively late developer as a writer mm-hmm. um, I think um, you only began writing seriously when you had to give up law at the age of 40 you were a practicing solicitor yeah. up until then and you were hit by a serious illness um, I think you said uh, to me once before uh, perhaps it was the creative void that um, having to give up the law that you de- devoted your kind of studies and your your life to up until that point that sent you down the cr- fiction road? Um, yeah, I think that, like, I always found law to be very, very creative as a job. And I know there is this perception um, people have of law that it's maybe a bit dry and boring, but actually I've, I've always found law to be really, really creative. And it is that constant working with words and constantly drafting words to a very, very precise degree and knowing that there's going to be perhaps quite serious consequences mm-hmm. if you choose the wrong words. So when that was all gone, um, I do think that um, writing and working with the drafting of words in another way mm-hmm. stepped in and mm-hmm. just took off. So um, I haven't practiced 
law now for um, for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, so I started writing um, fiction at the beginning of my 40s. I turned 50 this year and I haven't gone back to practice law mm-hmm. um, in the intervening period. I, I'm still um, quite attached to law and actually there are so many lawyer writers mm-hmm. in Ireland that we were able to put together an anthology of work called Counterparts yes. that's um, work by writers who have a legal background and that was published last year by the Sting Fly Press mm-hmm. in aid of Peter McVary Trust. Mm-hmm. So I think that lots of lawyers have this pull to working with words in lots of different ways. So mm-hmm. law, I think, is one way of working with words and sure. of working with stories and of working with point of view and of working with nuance and mm-hmm. suggestion and that's all there in writing as well, yeah. Thanks for listening to the Irish Times Books podcast. Watch out for new episodes on the second Saturday of every month.